Today, we feature Philip Goff, a leading professor and philosopher of the mind, Durham University. He's also a best-selling author and a good friend. You've seen him on Joe Rogan and on Lex Friedman, and his work revolves around the intricacies of consciousness, exploring profound questions that challenge our understanding of reality. Critical of materialism and dualism, he advocates a new kind of panpsychism, the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the physical world. I found it fascinating, even if I don't always agree, as you'll see. In his most recent book, aptly titled Why? purpose of the universe. He explores the meaning and purpose and challenges to the Western thought dominated by the dichotomy of traditional religion and secular atheism. Join us on a thought-provoking, sometimes provocative and confrontational journey into the mind, the nature of existence, and the ultimate purpose of the universe. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to a meaningful and purpose-filled edition of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring a second-time returning guest, the incomparable Professor Philip Goff, joining us all the way from the UK. How are you today, Phil? I'm very well. Good to see you again, Brian. I'm looking forward to chatting. Yes. Some people were surprised that I had you back on because you wrote this book and it sort of suggests that my hero, Galileo, made some mistakes. So well, we already talked about that in your previous wonderful book, Galileo's Errors, sitting behind you on your shelf. But today we're going to talk about really some incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, audacious goals, such as meaning, existence, religion, and the ultimate purpose of the universe. And I'm a cosmologist and you're a philosopher. And uh, I think between the two of us, we can get it solved in the next hour. So what I love to do is always have an author walk through the process of the cover books judgment. So you're not supposed to you know, have a categorical imperative, but I, I do wanna understand what was the origin, the genesis, the purpose of the title, the subtitle, and the beautiful color illustration. I should say this is by Oxford Press, and it's incredibly well. It's just a beautiful book, uh, so they did a great job as usual. Phil, judge this book by its cover. <laughs> it is a great cover, isn't it? Yeah, There's, there is a bit of a story, actually. So I think the um, the my editor had the idea initially of Aztec ruins. I think he thought like he didn't want it to be too cliched. If you think, you know, the purpose of the universe, you know, you might have stars or a face in the star. So he wanted it to be really different to that. And then my wife found this wonderful series of photographs online of, of nature overpowering old buildings. And it's sort of the sense of this broader purpose than human purpose kind of encompassing everything. And then I chose that one in particular and then the design team with the publisher did, did, did this incredible job. So yeah, that's wonderful. In terms of the title, originally I was calling it the, exi the, the, the purpose of the universe or the purpose of existence. And then maybe that sounds a bit academic-y. A few people, including my grandmother-in-law. Now, I, through my wife, I have grandparents-in-law. And she, she was one of the people who suggested, why not just call it why? And so we're thinking for them, for, you know, maybe just why would be wonderfully enigmatic and intriguing. But I think together with the subtitle, which sums it up, it really encapsulates it. It's really, as I say, it's audacious. It's it's wonderful, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of questions and comments uh, from my audience who I pinged earlier this morning. Um, but I guess the the you know. The big question that I still have trouble reconciling, and I've talked to one of the men who gave you, and my audience hates when I name drop, so I'm going to name drop in, uh, in you know, just, just throughout the conversation. But uh, Donald Hoffman, one of my most popular guests in addition to your appearances. And Don says, you know, he calls this book lucid and riveting with rare audacity. Goff blazes new trails. It's fascinating terrain to explore. Goff provides, proves an expert and genial guide. And I, I have to agree, having read it. But, but Phil, the problem I still have is I've talked to you and Don and uh, David Chalmers and many, many other people, and I still don't understand what panpsychism is. And that's still a hot topic uh, in, in what we cover. And I had a lot of questions from my audience on YouTube, and you can always ask me questions, and you should follow Phil on Twitter, on YouTube. He's a thriving YouTube channel. I'll have a link to it. But Phil, people don't get panpsychism. You're one of its 
foremost cheerleaders. It makes an appearance here. Tell us, can you give us a definition and maybe it'll get through my thick skull? What is panpsychism and why is it relevant to the purpose of the universe, if at, if at all? Panpsychism is the view that consciousness goes right down to the fundamental building blocks of reality. So maybe, I mean, it's a question for physics, right? What the fundamental building blocks of reality are. Maybe they're particles, maybe they're universe-wide fields, but whatever they are, the idea is that they have incredibly simple, rudimentary forms of experience. So nothing like the kind of experience a human being has after millions of years of evolution, but consciousness comes in all shapes and sizes. So the, you know, what it's like to be a human being is very rich and complex. What it's like to be a sheep, significantly simpler. What it's like to be a snail, simpler still. And as we move to simpler and simpler forms of life, we find simpler and simpler forms of subjective experience. For the panpsychist, that keeps going right down to the fundamental building blocks of reality that have incredibly simple forms of experience. At least if they're particles, I guess if they're universe-wide fields, they might have incredibly complex forms of experience, but still conceptually very simple. It's not like they're sort of contemplating their own existence or something. In the form of, you know, kind of this word experience, and I'm not making a comparison, but I had Deepak Chopra on, you know, my podcast several years ago. He is a, a friend and he lives in San Diego. So we, we get to hang out on occasion. You know, he also spoke in, in certain terms about experience and, and, um, and, and sort of nebulous terms to a physics audience. And remember, you're talking to the world's most brilliant uh, podcast audience and they can go deep into, you know, advanced relativity, quantum mechanics, et cetera. By what way? Let's just focus on electrons. I think they're probably the most simple thing we could talk about. I don't think we can really contemplate, you know, uh, in detail, you know, the, the top quark or something like that and how it might – let's just focus on electrons. How does an electron experience anything and, and what, if anything, would it experience? Uh, and so what does experience mean in the, in the context of a quantum mechanical particle who – can, which can be described, I don't say who, and now I'm lapsing into true uh, anthropomorphism and so forth. What does it mean to experience something? I mean, it's important to be clear what we're meaning by consciousness. We're not meaning self-consciousness, awareness of your own existence. Uh, that's something rabbits probably don't have, never mind electrons. We're just meaning any kind of subjective experience Thomas Nagel famously captured it by saying something is conscious if there's something that it's like to be it. And as I say, you know, we can get, we can imagine simpler and simpler forms of consciousness. Do bed bugs have experience? It's going to be almost incredibly simple. And there doesn't seem to be any conceptual limit to how simple experience could be. And in that way, there doesn't seem to be any incoherence in something incredibly rudimentary without any conceptual understanding of the world around it, just having some very kind of simple experience corresponding to its incredibly simple um, physical structure. Now, of course, it, just because it's coherent doesn't mean it's true. We've got to look to the, you know, the reasons to take this view seriously. But maybe in the way shape is a very, is a very flexible concept. You know, it's like, all sorts of conceivable different geometries. Maybe if you'd lived in a world where you'd only accounted very complicated geometry, very complicated shapes, the idea of a very, very simple triangle or something might be, how could shape be so simple? But of course, it is a very flexible concept. Likewise, with subjective experience, we're used to thinking of experience in terms of human beings, these very highly evolved creatures or complex animals. But I think panpsychism is in a way very Copernican. The, uh, I've done a few public discussions with the, with the writer Philip Pullman, who draws inspiration from panpsychism. And he put this to me that it's very Copernican. So we're not thinking of consciousness modeled on the very, in a panpsychist perspective, the very weird kind of consciousness that a human being has because it's so highly evolved and molded by those forces of evolution. But it's very, very flexible notion, very, very different to the human case, but still being just some kind of inner life or experience. I thought you were going to pull out uh, when you mentioned Thomas Nagel, you know, what is it like to be a bat? <clears throat> and that my follow-up book is What Is It Like to Be Thomas Nagel by A. Bat, Arthur Bat. Uh, <laughs> but the conclusion of that you know, monograph 
is basically we can't know. And, and that's with a mammal, right? So all the more so with, with a particle. And I guess, I, I guess how, how entwined is the notion of panpsychism with your current book? Obviously, that was a big thrust. I mean, how do you view it in terms of purpose? I mean, obviously, something cannot have a purpose or, you know, teleology, as you philosophers might say. Um, if it's not conscious or if it, if it, or it could participate in the theological purpose, but how does it, how does it instantiate it? I guess that's what I'm looking for. Where in the wave equation or in, you know, uh, Einstein's field equation, where, you know, where do we need consciousness? And then if you can say that we don't need it, you know, to kind of paraphrase Son Carroll, who makes appearances throughout your work, uh, how does it, how does it matter if it doesn't interact with the standard models, more or less? And I don't agree with Sean on most things, by the way, but, but here I, I think there's some notion of applicability. If it doesn't, if we can't put it into Hilbert space or we can't put it into a wave equation, does it matter? Good. So let me say a little bit about the case for panpsychism and then maybe connect it to cosmic purpose, which is the focus of this book. And yeah, well, Sean and I recently did a public debate in um, in the States, which people can get on YouTube. Maybe we can link to it, uh, which was a lot of fun, a very spirited, but good spirited debate. It was there were some gasps from the audience at some of the strong comments, but it was all in good, good fun. Yeah. So what we have at the core of the issues with consciousness is, I mean, I don't think this is a purely scientific problem when it comes to consciousness. I think we have here at root, as well as the, the scientific issues of consciousness, which are hugely important, an ancient problem that philosophers have traditionally referred to as the mind-body problem, which is the difficulty of how we fit together the physical world and consciousness, how they fit together. We know they both exist. We know about consciousness just because we're conscious and we're immediately aware of our feelings and experiences. We know about the physical world in a very different way through our senses, through doing science. So we've got these two portals on reality, two things we know about in quite different ways. How do they fit together? And there are a few different options. You know, may, maybe it's the physical world that's fundamental and consciousness arises from physical processes in the brain. That's the physicalist approach someone like Sean would adopt and many others. But the panpsychist says, well, it could be the other way around. It could be that consciousness is fundamental and physical reality arises from more fundamental facts about mind or consciousness. There's a third option, the dualist option, that they're both fundamental but radically different. And crucially, right, why is this not a scientific question? Because you can't just, you can't find out which of these views is right with an experiment. For any experimental data, each theory will just interpret it on their own terms. So, so how can we decide? People, I mean, people find that annoying. It's like, okay, well, what, what can we do if we can't do an experiment? But what we can do is try and look at the explanatory aspirations of these two viewpoints and which does better. So what's the explanatory aspiration of the physicalists? They try to explain the emergence of consciousness in terms of physical brain processes. How well has that gone? I would argue after decades of our greatest minds putting serious effort into this, I would argue it's gone absolutely nowhere. We've never managed to explain a single experience in terms of underlying neural activity. And also, I think, pretty good philosophical arguments that it's just not really a coherent project. Whereas when it comes to panpsychism, its explanatory aspiration is the other way around try to explain the emergence of physical reality from underlying facts about consciousness. And I would argue there, the mysteries are already solved. We've already worked out how to do that. And this is the inspiration of certain really important work Bertrand Russell did in the 1920s, thinking about consciousness and how physical reality might be constructed from underlying facts about consciousness. Well, maybe we could go into this. And in particular, his book, The Analysis of Matter in 1927. I think we should think of Russell as the Darwin of consciousness. I think he really solved all the mysteries here. Okay, so we've got, you know, physicalism never got anywhere of dubious coherence, I would argue. Panpsychism feels weird, doesn't fit with our current culture, but it, it delivers the goods. We, we know how to make sense of it. We know it works. So that's why I think it's the more plausible view. 
I could go on to cosmic purpose, but I've talked a bit too long already. Did you want to raise anything there or should I go? Into- I, I often lapse into, uh, you know, longer monologues <laughs> as the host and I'm shooting, you know, my, my uh, listeners tell me I should shoot for a, a 30 to 70 ratio of, uh, of speaking to, uh, to, to listening. But, uh, but I do want to hear about that because I think a core thesis of the book is, is that you kind of give, you upbraid, you know, traditional religious views and secular views as, as both of them kind of being wholly inadequate for the situation of determining meaning. Now I'm a practicing Jew and, and, uh, you know, I go to a temple, uh, you know, I can get around a, a prayer book. Uh, I'm very well versed in, in Jewish philosophy, et cetera. And it's, one of the oldest religions on earth, right? It's the, it's a precursor to, you know, three or 4 billion people's faith choices. So I think it's pretty shocking, right? That people will say, wait a second, this is inadequate. So make your case with, and we're going to turn to cosmology, believe me, because that's how my bread is buttered around the Keating household. But, but tell me, Phil, why do you say that traditional religions, I agree that atheism is inadequate. I, I think, I think we, we might agree very much have very much to agree about that. Why is traditional religion? Are 3.8 billion people wrong? That's really fascinating because yeah, I've done a hell of a lot of interviews on this in the last few weeks and almost all of them have said, oh yeah, of course God doesn't exist, but atheism, what's wrong with that? And, um, but you know, it's funny. It's like, so that's really refreshing. It's really refreshing yeah. that you've push it back from the other side. I mean, yeah, I, I always hate the dichotomies in my work, you know, you know, it's particularly with this one. So many people feel they have to fit into this binary, you know, do you believe in the God of traditional religion or are you a secular atheist? As I've said a number of times that, you know, it's like, which team are you on? Richard Dawkins or, or the Pope or the chief rabbi or, you know, um, you've got to pick your team. And I feel when you're talking to people, they're trying to put you into one of those categories. But I've just slowly over a long period of time just come to think that they're both inadequate. And well, just I suppose what I'm meaning by atheism, to be clear, is the idea of a meaningless, purposeless universe. One of the deep challenges there, I think, is the emergence of the fine tuning in physics for life, which does does suggest on the face of it some kind of purpose or goal directedness in reality so that's that's the that's the bit i focus on there as well as certain facts to do with the evolution of consciousness but coming to your question what's wrong with the traditional god well here it's the familiar the familiar issue for me of reconciling an all-knowing all-powerful god uh all-loving god with the horrific suffering we find in the world, in, in the human world, but also what's perhaps less focused on in, in much theodicy, the, the natural world. You know, why would a, a, a loving God who could do anything choose to create us through just a long-winded, horrific process like natural selection? Why would a loving God create the North American long-tailed shrew that paralyzes its prey and then eats it alive over several days before it eventually dies from its wounds. This just kind of makes no sense to me why what, why a loving God would do that. So so it's a familiar problem that I, th- I hope I give some new takes on. And well, I might just like to say briefly before you come back on this that so my first book was a was an academic book over here that you, might be a little impenetrable if you don't have a PhD in philosophy. My next book was aimed at general audience. This book's trying to do both. So each book, each chapter has a more accessible bit and then a digging deeper bit where I try to get more into the cutting edge of the field or the technical details or consider all the objections. But yeah, so that's, so what, so it's the old problem of evil, I guess. I, I've, I've always found that one of the most compelling philosophical arguments. What do you think, Brian? Hi there, so sorry to interrupt this meaningful and purpose-filled episode, but I have to get something important to share to you right now. Learning is a lifelong process, so obviously you need all the materials to learn from somewhere, and that's why you really need to join my mailing list at briankeating.com list. By joining, you'll also get the freshest science news from the farthest reaches of the known universe delivered straight to your inbox, and you'll automatically be entered to win a piece of an authentic chunk of space schmutz, a meteorite, a real fragment of the early solar system. All you got to do is join my mailing list at briankeating.com slash list, and you'll be entered to join immediately. Now back to the episode. Oh, I, I agree. And of course, you know, there are all these tropes, Phil, that we could go into, you know, the, the classic one is that, uh, you know, the, the believer 
has but one question, you know, why do uh, bad things happen to good people? Uh, or why do good things happen to bad people? Let me just ask you yes or no. Or, or which do you think is more, um, is, is more painful for you when a good thing happens to your enemy? Or when something bad happens to a friend? Which, which is worse? Well, it ought to be the latter. And I hope it's the latter. I suppose that's the, that's what we, we, we aspire to. I suppose I'm quite lucky that I've never had somebody wrong me very, very deeply. And maybe I would incline more to the former in those circumstances. I don't know. I hope not. There are these wonderful stories, aren't there, of, um, of, of people who manage to forgive in incredible circumstances. And, you know, that's, that's the, aspiration but um is it the name of the the book you gave then what the, who who was the uh was it the a jewish philosopher or theologian who had this idea of a a deity of limited abilities or i actually don't call myself a classic you know theist in the sense of i call myself a practicing jew earlier and, and what that means is I, I think scientifically a very moderate way to be is to be what i call a practicing agnostic and this goes back to my first ever conversation on this podcast with your fellow countrymen, and I'm sure a great inspiration to you, the late, great Freeman Dyson. And so Freeman was my first guest on this podcast. And I asked him in that conversation and in many conversations uh, subsequent to that, you know, what, what he meant when he said he was agnostic. And, and he would say, you know, well, I think God is a mystery and physics is a mystery and I love solving puzzles and mystery. I said, oh, that's great. But what do you do? What if uh, an alien version of Richard Dawkins uh, was observing you on a, on a Sunday? He would see you and Richard Dawkins doing the same thing, you know, maybe watching, I don't know what you guys do, cricket match or, or attending a royal opera or doing whatever over there in the, in the beautiful uh, UK. In other words, there's no functional distinguishing characteristics of his flavor of, ag of agnosticism from Dawkins's flavor of atheism. So for me, as I said, I, I eat kosher food. I don't um, you know, work on the Sabbath, which for me is a Saturday. I um, can attend a temple. I can read Hebrew. I, I, I read the portion of the, of the Torah every week that's associated with that week's reading in, in the temple. Uh, I can you know, muddle my way through it. I was just in Israel. I did my bar mitzvah at age 52. I never had it as a kid uh, for reasons I won't get into. To. So for all these reasons, I said, you know, Freeman, I love you, but um, but there's no difference. I mean, you're functionally the same as Richard Dawkins or Lawrence Krauss, who I spoke to recently uh, on stage here in San Diego. So I guess my feeling is theodicy is is one of the oldest challenges. I, I, I didn't finish the, the trope. The trope is, you know, a believer has but one question. You know, how do you explain the existence of evil in a world created by God, good God, you know, a good God, right? So that is a question. It's your number one question. But then they say, an atheist has an infinite number of questions. And I think, you know, some of them are addressed in this book, the simulation hypothesis, the multiverse, fine tuning, anthropic uh, principle, and we're going to get into as many of those as we can. But um, I guess the, the, the question of theodicy has been answered for 1100 years in Judaism, at least to the extent of interactions between people like i don't think the shrew is evil like i don't whatever that shrew is and and i have to make a reminder not to get that for my daughter for for hanukkah she always wants these exotic pets right she wanted actually a komodo dragon recently but uh that's not gonna happen so phil uh, i don't consider that evil i consider it you know it's it's, it's part of nature I, what i do consider evil you know terrorism you know, torturing human beings and man-on-man, -man, you know, type of violence, uh, crimes against, you know, uh, uh, things that don't have purpose like cancer or earthquakes or a pandemic, those I don't view as evil. I, I view those as, as awful, but they're not directed. And so in Maimonides, Rambam in, in Judaism, one of the foremost medieval scholars, you know, he answered it in the classic tense that was later picked up by the Catholics and Christians. And, and that is that, you know, God had to have, to allow free will, there had to be evil committed by man against man. Now, you may not believe in free will the way I, I do. I want to ask you just in a short answer form. Do you believe we have free will? I mean, is that possible to answer? And I know that many people, you know, Sabina Hassenfelder and, and Dunn Hoffman, many others don't, right? So do you, can you just say very briefly, because we have so much to cover in the remaining time, do you believe in free will or, or no? I know it's an impossible thing. <laughs> I'm somewhat agnostic. I, I don't think the reality of free will is as certain as the reality of consciousness. It, 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 it could turn out to be an illusion and it's partly an empirical question, 
However, I am very, and I go into this in the book, I am very unconvinced by either the philosophical or the scientific arguments against free will. I think people deny, people like um, Sabina, who I've been rowing with on Twitter this week, uh, in, in a nice way, maybe. I, yeah, um, you're a classy guy. It's more of a zeitgeist. It's just people feels that's how science ought to be. But, you know, we don't, we know, the more I've talked to neuroscientists, the more I've found out that we, how little we know about the brain. You know, I think, I think we know a lot about sort of the basic chemistry of the brain, how neurons fire, how chemical signals are sent and so on. And we know a fair bit about big bits of the brain, their function in the overall economy. What we're almost clueless on is how those big functions are realized at the cellular level. And I'd want to know a lot more about that before I'm convinced that we can reduce everything that's going on to underlying chemistry and physics and therefore there's no free will. So I think it's an open question and I would say it seems like we have free will. And so in the absence of any empirical argument one way or the other, I think we can tentatively believe in free will. And you're right, that's an important part of addressing the problem of evil. But, well, actually, you're completely right that, the, that you know, cancer is an evil. It's maybe a little bit of a misnomer because the way the word is used in this context, it it, it is often used to mean just a bad thing. It should really be the problem of evil and suffering. But still, so I think free will can go a long way with human evil, perhaps. But really, it's naturally natural suffering that gets me. And one, what I focus on in the book, actually, and so I engage a lot with the work of the Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne, who um, is reviewing it for the Times Literary Supplement, actually, and giving his responses. And then we're going to have a little debate on it on the, the Unbelievable podcast. He tries to argue that there are certain good things in a universe with natural suffering, cancer, earthquakes, hurricanes, that we wouldn't have in a, in a universe without what we call natural evil. I, I agree with you, that's a bad word for it. Like, he thinks that we wouldn't have significant moral choices. Like, the decision whether to show courage, whether to show compassion, whether to choose to hurt or to harm. We'd just be in some kind of Disneyland with no serious moral choices. We'd be like the idle rich. So my response is, is even if he's right about that, I don't think a creator has the right to kill and maim in order to bring about these goods by creating hurricanes and earthquakes and so on. You know, just as, I mean, there's a classic example to very crude forms of utilitarian moral philosophy. You know, imagine we have a doctor who could kill one healthy patient to save five, you know, he gives the lungs to one, the heart to another. Well, that doctor would increase well-being by, um, you know, fi saving five lives at the cost of one. And let's pretend, you know, no one's ever going to find out about it or something. But most of us think still the doctor does not have the right to take that person's life. Similarly, I think I think a creator, even if they could bring about great goods by creating hurricanes and earthquakes, I don't think it would be acceptably more acceptable morally for a creator to infringe our rights to to life and health and security by creating natural disasters. So, yeah, so it's an interesting take on that, I think. Well, I just want to exercise uh, the beneficence of my audience and beseech their free will. Uh, so last time you were on, Phil, that we got tens of thousands of views, but very troublingly, for me at least, only about 50%, I don't know if you can see this, only about 50% of the viewers of this wonderful life-changing podcast with you uh, and me last time, changed my life for the better, um, are subscribed to the channel. And so I'm asking everybody out there, if you're, if you're listening, if you're enjoying this, please do consider subscribing and leaving a comment because that really helps me get these wonderful guests like Phil and, and his contemporaries and colleagues like David Chalmers and Nick Bostrom and Brian Green is, is coming up on the podcast as well as David uh, Z. Albert. Uh, philosopher of physics at Columbia is coming on. So uh, we want to get great episodes and, and this will help help me help you out there. So please do consider subscribing. So Phil, we, we talked about, you know, kind of this, this notion of, of free will in a universe of, you know, with a God or not. And I should say, I also don't believe in, you know, many of the kind of childish conceptions of God or the white beard, you know, Yuri Gargarin, when he orbited the earth for the first time in 1961, 
uh, he came back and he said, they asked him, what did you see? And he said, well, I didn't see a guy in a white beard. I'm like, well, nobody thought you'd see a guy in a white beard unless you're an idiot. But, you know, this kind of simplicity. Yeah, I also don't believe in some of the gods that Lawrence Krauss doesn't believe in. But I ask you, you know, because one of the extrapolations of what you just said, this doctor that can save five. Um, so let's say we've had on many, many um, uh, people, including your countrymen and, and uh, uh, a fellow uh, brilliant scientist uh, and thinker, um, Tim Palmer. And we talked about the existential nature of of global warming and human-induced climate change. And uh, we'll get around to fine-tuning and climate change denialism in just a bit. But there's a, a strong contingent that you mentioned in, in the opening chapter of the book. It's called antinatalism. And antinatalism is the movement to uh, reduce the population of, of Earth in order to prevent, primarily to prevent induced uh, you know, climate change effects leading to the uninhabitability of the planet and many people have proposed this. I always say, well, you know, the natural conclusion of that is if, if it's good not to have kids, that it's better to kill everybody else, including the antinatalists. So I'm always like, you first. How do you react to a world where that in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, I assume, is is forbidden, you know, suicide, you know, and so forth. But even the notion of decreasing human population, you know, humans are inherently infinite in value in Judaism as as being B'Tselem and Elohim in, in, in the image of God, in the in the, a spark of, of God. So tell me, isn't there a danger of the slippery slope that you get on the antinatalism route and then it leads to, well, we shouldn't be here at all. And in fact, many people have said that we should not be here at all. It's really interesting. Just just going back to I'll come to that in a second, but just going back to what you're saying about uh, the old man in the sky and so on. I mean, maybe maybe in a sense, we're not so far apart because well, one thing one thing I'm trying to do in this book is, you know, consider things that aren't the familiar options and just get people to think about them and you're not going to agree with all it but one thing i consider is religious fictionalism the possibility of engaging a tradition a religious practice even without necessarily having the beliefs and you know religion isn't just about the beliefy bits you know it's about rites of passage that bring the community together you know and mark the seasons and the big moments of life birth marriage death coming of age tradition, spiritual practice. And so I was raised Catholic, um, but the Catholicism, I suppose, of my parents was more about community and rather than dogma. And although I, I didn't get confirmed, uh, like you didn't get your bar mitzvah when you were a child, um, you still, I did get still... confirmed, though. I did get confirmed in the Catholic Church. That's oh, really? Ah, okay. 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 I was a terrible. I was a terrible altar boy. I was always ringing the bell at the wrong time. I still find deep meaning in 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 the the, the symbolism of Christianity. The the centralized inversion of worldly values that you know were identifying God not with the king in his castle but with the naked executed peasant you know the guy who hung out with sinners and outcasts and loved his enemies and so on so i still find great meaning in that and i'm you know i'm sure sim similar in in the hebrew bible lots of these powerful symbolic meanings but anyway coming directly to your question well that sounds almost like a a, a a more moderate thought form of antinatalism you, you were discussing there because so what i what i discuss in the book is even more radical the view of um the antinatalist philosopher who thinks life is not entirely meaningless but is so meaningless that actually it's immoral to have offspring because you're bringing uh people into this incredibly meaningless universe and the, the the moral thing to do is to let the human race pass out of existence. So he's not, I don't think he's concerned with climate change. He's not just reducing the population to save the planet. He thinks right. this is the ethical thing. This has become a, a small religion in its own right, actually. The, um, it, it, there's an, a guy in India who tried to sue his parents for bringing him to existence without his consent. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, well, what I... I considered like this one extreme, so you get the antinatalist atheist view, the view of William Lane Craig, that if there's no purpose to the universe, we might as well just rape and murder each other. He actually says, you know, we do what the hell we want if there's no, it's all pointless. And then at the other extreme, again, it's all about the dichotomies for me. The other extreme, you've got the familiar secular atheist position that, you know, probably there's no point to the universe, but even if there is, it's irrelevant. You know, I make my own meaning. I make my own purpose. 
So the middle ground option I kind of more inclined towards is yes, you can have a perfectly meaningful, happy life independently of whether there's a purpose to the universe. But if if there's there is some kind of as I'd argue in the book, I try to take seri- I think there's reason to take seriously. There is some kind of purpose or goal directedness at the fundamental level. There's maybe the pos- the possibility of having a more meaningful life. You know, we, we, want our, we want our lives to make a difference if you could in some small way contribute to the purposes of the whole of reality. That's huge. That's about as big a difference as you can imagine making. So, so this cosmic purposivist position, as we might call it, is one way of approaching the meaning of life, conceiving of the good you do in in a, in a broader ethical project that encompasses the whole of reality. And again, you know, I'm, I'm never I'm into like dogmatically laying down the law. This is the one true way of living a life. But it's at least interesting to consider to ent- I'd like people to sort of entertain these alternatives to both traditional religion and the familiar secular atheist option. So uh, there's so much to talk about. We could do many, many hours. I want to make sure to get in some questions from my audience that asked me on Twitter, where you can follow uh, Phil as well, at uh, Philip underscore Goff with one L and Philip. So there's a question that really kind of resonated with me based on some of the conversations I heard you with my friend Robert Kuhn on Closer to Truth recently and talking about fine tuning. And uh, there's a tweet. I guess it was last week from from you that said there are many scientific papers presenting the case for fine tuning. This is no different to climate change denial. That's a shocking revelation. I mean, to hear you say that really shocked me. And it's a screenshot. So I don't know if you really said that. So tell me, uh, is there uh, can you explain what did you mean by the statement that it's no different than climate change denial? Well, right. So it's important to realize what we mean by fine tuning or what I mean, which I think is fairly standard, is just that for life to be possible, certain numbers in physics had to fall in a certain narrow range. That's the empirical datum that I'm focusing on. Now, there are, there are other things that are more, you know, are rightly debated. For example, coming back to Sabine Hossenfelder, she doubts that we can get a probability claim out of that. So it's a, it's a further step to say fine-tuning is improbable. Oh, how improbable that our, that you, our universe should allow for life. That's a further step. Now, I think you can make that step, and I get heavily into the, you know, probability theory, but that is rightly debated, and that's a, that's a perfectly legitimate debate. Um, but, the, but, the, but if you just get a lot of people on Twitter just flatly denying any scientifically credi- credibility, and, you know, and it just seems to be that, that, that there's... A fairly solid empirical case, for example, the cosmological constant, um, you know, that, 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 that if it had been significantly bigger, no two particles would have, would have ever met, everything would have been pushed apart so quickly. So the cosmological constant is, measures the force that pushes apart the universe, whereas if it had been less than zero, so it's my understanding is it's very, very, very close to zero, very small, but uh, not zero, if it had been negative, if it had passed surpassed zero and become negative, well then it would it would have it wouldn't have counteracted gravity and so the universe would have collapsed back on itself a split second after the Big Bang. So so look there's all sorts of things you can say here. You could say like Roger Penrose does, well I think I think I think it's gonna change. I think the physics will change and, and the fine tuning will disappear. I mean that's an option, but to my mind that's it's almost like artificially ramping up the standards of evidence in a way we wouldn't do in other places. Like, oh, we can't draw conclusions from fine-tuning until we've completed physics. <laughs> you know, I mean, it could be we'll complete physics and the fine-tuning will go away. Or it could be there's more fine-tuning. Anyway, that's I've, I've digressed there slightly. But so there's lots of things to debate here. People who say on Twitter, I don't find scientists saying this. There was this one guy, Stenger, who used to say this, but generally I don't find physicists saying this, but people on social media say, no, it's all nonsense. There's no scientific case for this basic empirical datum that for life to be possible, for any kind of structural complexity possible, these numbers, the, the values of the constants had to fall in a certain quite narrow range. I think that's sort of just equivalent to just denying the empirical data for ideological reasons, I think. 
Right. It's it's to, to think about, you know, fine tuning. I guess the, some of the uh, comments and questions that I've had have to do with the definition of fine tuning. So depending on how you look at fine tuning, when you go back in, in time, the uh, certain problems get, you know, inextricably uh, difficult and, and, and you, there's, there's completely intractable. I mean, if you change the density of the universe by one atom or one proton at, uh, at the equivalent of, you know, one attosecond after the Big Bang, um, and you add one proton, the universe collapses. But if you add one proton today, nothing happens, right? So there's time-dependent, you know, fine-tuning. And then there's, you know, material-dependent fine-tuning. In other words, we don't know what dark energy is. We don't know what the inflaton is or if it exists. That's actually what pays my my rent around here because I'm searching for the aftershocks of inflation or its alternatives. And I guess the the, you know, kind of competing theme that I keep hearing from my brilliant audience is, you know, how would you know that your supposition is is wrong? Um, you know, in other words, Steelman, kind of the the opposition to your thesis about fine tuning. And I wonder if you could do that simultaneously with this inverse gambler's fallacy paradox. So first, define what the gambler's paradox is uh, fallacy is. Then define the inverse of that that you use so skillfully uh, in a lot of your um, a lot of your thinking and writing. And then how how would you know that th that the supposition about fine-tuning might be wrong. Your supposition about fine-tuning would be wrong. So the inverse gambler stuff relates to, is an important objection to the multiverse. I mean, I, I for a long time, I thought the multiverse was the, the most plausible account here. I've always thought fine-tuning needed explaining, but I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to believe in cosmic purpose. It, it, it feels as peculiar to me as, as it does to anyone else. Um, and I, so I used to think, oh, it's probably the multiverse. But I was just persuaded over a long period of time that there's, that there's some dodgy reasoning going on in the inference from fine-tuning to a multiverse. And, and basically, then, the, you know, that there's some dodgy reason going on in huge proportion of theoretical physics, potentially. Um, and, you know, what I'm quite excited about this book, actually, this is not original to me. It's, this has been in the, the academic literature on probability for decades but in a classic case of academics talking to themselves, nobody knows about it outside of academic philosophy of probability, you know, despite huge interest in fine tuning among, you know, religious people arguing for God or certain scientists arguing for the multiverse. Anyway, right. So, so we, you, people might be familiar with the gambler's fallacy that you've had bad run of luck all night. And you think, well, I'll, I'm bound to have a good look this time. I'm bound to roll a double six this time because I've rolled badly all night. Everyone knows that's a fallacy because the odds of getting a double six, one in 36, the same every time. It's irrelevant whether you've just started or you've been playing all night. The inverse gambler's fallacy kind of does that in reverse. So, well, the example I like to give, suppose, Brian, I, I, I come and visit you and we go to a you take me to a wonderful casino and... We walk in and we see we're in this, we walk into this small room with just one person playing roulette and they're just having an incredible run of luck. They're just winning and winning and winning and winning. And I, and I say, wow, the casino must be busy tonight. And you say, what are you talking about? We've just seen this one guy. How, what's that got to do with other rooms in the casino? And I say, well, if there's, if there are tens of thousands of people playing roulette in the casino, then it's not so surprising that someone someone in the casino is going to have an incredible run of luck at roulette, run of luck at roulette and that's just what we've observed someone having an incredible run of luck at roulette now everyone agrees that's a fallacy that's the inverse gambler's fallacy our observational evidence is this particular individual has played well people in other rooms in the casino it's irrelevant that's a fallacy everyone agrees but it looks indiscernible from the reasoning of the multiverse theorists you know they observe oh my god the numbers in physics are just right for life there must be lots of other universes with terrible numbers but that is just as our observational evidence concerns this one universe we've observed and just as other rooms in the casino are relevant to the success of this one person in front of us so other universes are irrelevant to explaining the fine-tuning we see that's the Basic idea, but I'm sure there's lots to debate here. The multiverse, of course, you know, many of the, I, I recently sat down just for an informal conversation with David Albert in Columbia, and we talked about, you know, the philosophy of cosmology and, and how the multiverse is kind of this, this, you know, almost, you know, too good to be true solution to so many different, uh, different 
problems in cosmology. And yet it's, it's, it's not necessarily mandated by any one physical theory. I mean, it's a consequence of string theory, of M theory in some cases. But, you know, let's say we fast forward and we get a letter from God. I don't want to say God, but, you know, we get a letter and it says, you know, inflation uh, is undetectable. And it may have happened or it may not have happened. Um, if it happened, it may have happened at an energy scale too insufficient to create the reverberations in space-time that my colleagues and I are trying to detect with the Simons Observatory, uh, the so-called B-mode polarization of the CMB. Um, but in that case, you know, where do we go? What what conclusions in the in in a universe that's potentially in a multiverse, but can never be can never be falsified to uh, to not be in a multiverse? And there are many competing theories that don't predict gravitational waves at all. Those can be falsified. Um, Sir Roger Penrose, you know, in nearby you is is a proponent of one of them. So how do you react to, to that? It, that it may never be provable or falsifiable that the multiverse is, or infl let's just say inflation took place, let alone the multiverse. Well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of outside of my pray grade, to be honest, assessing the, I mean, but one thing I do do in the book, which is extraordinarily, again, something that's never been done before, connecting up this specific objection to the multiverse, the inverse gambler's fallacy, to the scientific discussions of the multiverse. It's, ex I mean, I don't know, academics just get, I'm not saying this is my brilliance, it's just, how academics just get focused in such a narrow thing that they don't, it's unbelievable. But anyway, I try to link it up and I, I try to argue that, yeah, look, I'm not a physicist. I can't assess the, the inflationary case for the multiverse or not. But what I try to argue in the book, and maybe it'd take a, too long to go into this, people can look it up, but I try to say that even if, even if you go for the inflationary multiverse, the only way to avoid the inverse gambler's fallacy is to think, all of the all or most of the universes are fine-tuned so the problem doesn't go away and anyway that's what i try to show and um and of course there's issues about anthropic selection effect and so on i mean i go into this in great detail but i mean just briefly with the with the analogy we gave you could add a little artificial selection effect right imagine there's as we walk into the casino there's a hidden sniper at the back who's gonna blow our brains out if if the person in playing roulette doesn't have an incredible run of luck. Well, then there's a selection effect. We own, we, the only thing we could have observed is someone having an incredible run of luck. But it's still a fallacy. Likewise, whilst it's true that we couldn't have observed a non-fine-tuned universe, I don't think that makes a difference to the fallacy. But anyway, it, you know, so the book goes into more, more, more depth or less depth, depending on how you want to take it. And then I'm going to take one t uh, question from... YouTube or Dr. Brian Keating. Also, if you're listening on the podcast app, uh, be sure to tune into the subscribe to the channel as well, uh, because there are many different uh, fun things that you get over there that you don't necessarily get on audio only. Um, this is from Malachi Marvin. He asks, we're the ones who assign purposes to things. So I guess the real question is, do we have a use for it? How do, you, how do you react to that? Uh, we, as humans, I assume, are what are, is describing purpose. So shouldn't the question be, do we have, <laughs> do we have uh, the right or use, or is it evolutionary or in any way contingent that we have a purpose or we can ascribe purpose? I know that's the way we tend to think of things, that purpose has just come from human beings. But I suppose I'd want to ask Malachi, well, well what's your argument for that? There seem coherent possibilities, or I try to lay out in great detail in the book, coherent possibilities where there is purpose in the universe independently of human beings. Um, I consider, for example, the cosmopsychist view that the universe is itself a conscious mind with its own goals. Or if, you, if panpsychism is too wacky for you, I discussed Thomas Nagel's view in his book, Mind and Cosmos, that there are teleological laws, laws of nature with purposes built into them. And some philosophers have really spelt out a very rigorous account of this. So it seems to be coherent. And I think fine tuning and certain facts that we haven't gone into about the evolution of consciousness, I would argue, give us strong reason to take it seriously. And I, I, I sort of think we're in a little bit of denial, a bit in denial about this at the moment. It's maybe like in the 
16th century when we first started getting evidence that we're not in the center of the universe and people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they'd got used to and nowadays we scoff at those people those stupid religious people why couldn't they just follow the evidence but every generation absorbs a worldview they can't see beyond i think that's what's going on with fine-tuning now i think future historians will look back and think why did they just ignore this fine tuning set? Why didn't they see it's obviously evidence for cosmic purpose? And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about the time we're living in is we've got this little thing called Bayes' theorem, this little bit of mathematics, which tells us how evidential support works. To my mind, a pretty straightforward application of Bayes' theorem um, to fine tuning spits out evidence for cosmic purpose. I just think we're in denial about it because for cultural reasons. You know, we're very well trained in the West, I think, to be alert to religious biases, maybe from a religious upbringing. And that's good. And that's good. What is not talked about very often is secular biases. Maybe there's, in a secular worldview, certain, you know, I feel silly talking about these things. We have a word for for religious, you know, intolerance. It's a f religious fundamentalism. And I think that's true. And I think there is a evolutionary or maybe culturally you, you know, high utility function for being very skeptical about religion because it, it's the best, it may be a good form of morality and, and ethos, but it's a horrible form of government, right? And so we interact with the government, we're animus politicus, as our, your friend Aristotle would say, right? We're political animals. But Phil, so we should be very, very suspicious of the theocracies, right? Those are really bad. But we should also have a word for the equivalent, you know, atheist, mil militant atheist should be atheist fundamentalism. Yeah, um, I mean, I, we'll have to talk again about this because this is so fascinating. I would love to come on your podcast. Um, you, I've had you on twice now. You'd be very welcome. Yeah. Trailer episode. I am throwing down the gauntlet. I would love to come on your podcast. Let's do talk. it hours, maybe debate with love and comedy and a little comedy. But today we're talking, uh, we've got to wrap up uh, with my friend and truly, Phil, you're such a mensch. I, I, I love talking to you. I love your podcast, oh, Mind you. Chat with, um, how do you say your co-host uh, name? I always have trouble with Keith, Fra Keith. Keith Frankish. It's uh, Frankish. Keith Frankish. We're, the podcast, I always say, with the lowest production values and the best, best philosophy. We're too busy with kids and work to edit videos. If we just hit broadcast and do some silly stuff and talk about philosophy. It. We're going to put clips <laughs> to your debate with uh, Sean Carroll, who I've often debated, and I, I'd love to, I'd love to, um, yeah. as I say, please, I I'm, just I'm say, a shameless plug for myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just say very briefly, because <laughs> yeah. I didn't quite explain. I talked about how physicalism can't explain stuff, but panpsychism can't. We didn't really get into that, but if the debate with Sean Carroll starts off with a statement of explaining all that. So if people want to hear more about that, you can check out, which is on my mind chat channel wow. well I, I love that episode and phil i love this book beautifully written um and uh, of course academically there's chock full of citations and some of our friends and past guests like your aunt lewis and many others phil thank you so much i'm sorry it was short we'll do a part two or i'll do a part one on your show have a wonderful day and night really for you thanks for staying up so late and being so such a such a wonderful guest as usual oh thanks so much brian it's been wonderful thanks for having me on again all right take care